Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. If you're listening or watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, as well as hitting the like button and the notification bell so you never miss a video. If you prefer audio format, search Gifted Performance on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting service and subscribe today. Make sure you also rate and review the podcast as that helps us out tremendously. Enjoy the podcast and stay gifted. Welcome back, guys. Another episode of your favorite show in all of the podcasting universe, the GPP, the Gifted Performance Podcast. What do we do for you? Well, we give you the knowledge and practical takeaways to improve your own general physical preparedness. In what fields? In fat loss, in hypertrophy, in sport performance, in all of it. Today, we're talking hypertrophy and fat loss. I've got the three professors within the fat loss and hypertrophy mentoring lab in front of me today, Mr. Kuza, or sorry, Professor Kuza, Professor Polyrocket, and Professor Complete Meathead himself. How is everyone doing today? I'm good. Wow, that was just pathetic. That was terrible. You guys act like you don't even want to be here. Like you don't want to hang out with me. I thought I sounded excited. Okay, Paul's excited. Paul is Paul. Do you want to tell the people what you're working on today in terms of your 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 grammar, your speaking on the podcast, and then go ahead and comment below with what you think about what Paul is working on here. Paul, let him know. Well, rather than actually fix myself and work on me, I'm using <laughs> technology to just make my lecture as annoying as possible and have like 167 cutscenes. So I say um and like less. So Paul's working on his likes and his ums. So you can start a like and an um counter down below for him. That actually probably won't help. Don't do that. Don't be a dick. All right. Question number one. Should we do it? Everyone's ready. I'm getting the head nods. People on Spotify, they're like weird, awkward silence. Nice. Just um, cut it. All right. Fuck it. Yep. Cut it. Just cut it. <laughs> cut right there. And we're back for another question. Uh, this question comes. F- oh, fuck, man. These names. Abu Zaid Diana. <laughs> what? Oh, yep. That is who the question came from. No, it's, it, her name is Anna, and her last okay. name is Abu Zaid. Ah. So, okay. Abu Zaid Anna. So, she so she's so. from Jersey. She's Lebanese. A nice Irish girl. <laughs> All nice right, Anna. Irish girl. <laughs> We're getting into your question here. All right. So Anna asks albuterol versus clenbuterol in terms of effectiveness and how it affects the body. So we'll preface this conversation with this being a purely theoretical discussion on the implementation of these two compounds for the purpose of fat loss. First and foremost, let's talk about the compounds that are albuterol, clenbuterol, and the pharmacological side of things, of how these things work and how they're applied by doctors. Who wants to snag that one? Dom, Paul? Dom. Dom? Dom. Well, so we know that albuterol and clenbuterol were designed as asthma medicine medication to help with dilating your bronchioles so that you could breathe better. Uh, Because we know people with asthma have trouble with their like they have bronchial spasms and they have 
issues with breathing when they have asthma issues. So albuterol and clenbuterol were designed to alleviate that. Um, we know that comes from because they are beta-2 agonists, so they attach to beta-2 receptors. And that is one cascade that causes muscle contraction, so we can see bronchial dilation from that. But we also see side label usage that turns into fat loss uh, components of it because when we see beta-2 receptors activated by these um, compounds, we see an increase in cyclic AMP, which increases pKa, which can cause more lipolysis and more protein synthesis and actually can inhibit protein breakdown. So that's where the concept of utilizing, in theory, these compounds for fat loss comes from. You said that there are some mechanisms there for protein synthesis, potentially muscular hypertrophy as well, right? Because when I first got into bodybuilding, I heard a lot of people talking about um, use of clenbuterol or very high dosages of clenbuterol actually being the opposite of that, being rather catabolic. But then you read some research in like pigs and animals that shows that these compounds can actually be anabolic. So where's the kind of disconnect or what's the what's the truth there? Paul? Me? Oh, fucking no, man. <laughs> no, I mean, no, it, it really does. It, it seems to be more effective in animals. Um, but that theoretical kind of concept is there for humans. I mean, in that mechanism. But in practice... I just I don't think I've ever really seen it play out to where you you can tease it out and say like oh for sure somebody somebody took clenbuterol and they they built significant amounts of muscle you know what I mean and then also there are things to consider too like uh, maybe um, I guess sort of counterpoints to it because there are some people that may take doses of this stuff that interfere with like sleep and stress and stuff like that as well. Like it's a big problem with clenbuterol and it's really long half-life is that some people, especially if they take it close to bed, they do have s trouble sleeping. Yeah. And I think uh, that's one thing too, when Anna's asking the difference between the two, you'll see that like albuterol has a much shorter half-life than clenbuterol. So people tend to not experience like shakes and things like that for extended amounts of time. Or even if I think also too, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think I've read before albuterol has a little bit lower of a binding affinity. It doesn't bind as strong as clenbuterol does. So the effects aren't going to be as great of clenbuterol, for example. And I think that's a reason why clenbuterol was taken off the market as a medication because of how powerful it was. I think I've heard of albuterol almost referred to as like Glenn's little sister or something. At the end of the day, these compounds are acting on the sympathetic nervous system, correct? They're increasing sympathetic tone or increasing sympathetic drive. So what kind of side effects can you, can you expect from compounds like this? Um, some of the, the scary stuff that you can run into if you were to say, you know, I'm going to go on a fat loss diet, I'm going to throw clenbuterol in there all willy nilly. Are you, oh. So, I mean, there 
there's a small stuff that um, Dom mentioned, like the getting jittery. And then there are some people, for instance, who get like high anxiety with clenbuterol. And that's where maybe albuterol can be a uh, sort of second option. But in terms of long-term effects, like these, these compounds are not going to be great for like uh, cardiovascular health, for instance, especially when people start, you know, compounding on top of that with like thyroid medications or other, other like anabolic compounds and such as well for long durations of time or high doses. Yeah, because we know that the heart has beta-2 receptors too. So we could see some hypertrophy of heart tissue that we don't want to see with extended use and high dosage use. Yeah. It's, oh, sorry. No, and then I, potassium depletion is a big one that you could see with these. Uh, and then that could cause heart arrhythmias and whatnot. Um, going back to Dom's thing on the receptors because they are going to increase heart contractility, heart rate, and uh, also peripheral resistance. And another funny, a funny thing about clenbuterol is that because it's an anabolic agent, if it's given in the right dosages to animals, you'll actually see some professional athletes from certain countries that have less regulations in terms of what drugs you can give to livestock test positive oh no do we lose ryan uh, i think i'm back he's back i think i'm back he's back so i remember a story of like 17 members of the mexican national soccer team all testing positive for clenbuterol and the reasoning was that they ate like tainted pork and the livestock in that country, I guess, were fed high concentrations of clenbuterol. And even famous boxer Canelo Alvarez tested positive for clenbuterol. And he said the same thing. He used the same story. You know, I was visiting my family in Mexico. Uh, you know, we had some pork and it must have been tainted with clenbuterol. How much truth is there to that? Um, I don't really know. Uh it, just asking you guys, is that something where you think that could be like a logical story? I don't or know. were these people just taking clan to get the, the advantage and they were just I like, mean, oh, I ate some pork. Oops. It kind of it kind of sounds like they were just taking it because if you look at the sports they were playing, they're endurance sports. Yeah. Boxer needs to go a long ways. Soccer players need to run a lot. <laughs> so I don't know how much eating pork did that to them. Damn it! You crushed it for me. I thought that I thought that sports were clean. <laughs> I remember reading that story and just being like, "Oh yeah, sure, it's the pork that that adds up, definitely." Yeah. Would that even? I don't feel like it make because that that would mean that the dude think know. about like the beef we eat and the chicken we eat. Yeah, that would mean that the. Clen would have to be stored within the muscle of the pig. That would have to survive the slaughter of the pig, the preparation for consumption, be consumed, survive di human digestion, and still be enough of it in concentration for you to test positive on a compound that has an obscenely short half-life. 
you know, as we dig a little deeper, this story seems less and less likely. Everyone is suspect here. Come on, Canelo. Use the John Jones technique. When USADA shows up, what do we do? We hide underneath the ring. You guys heard that story? No. USADA showed up to test John Jones, and they, like, hid him underneath the boxing ring, and they were like, oh, he's not here right now. (laughs) And then they came back, like, a week later, and he tested positive anyway. (laughs) There's a few stories like that. There's one with, uh, wasn't there one not that long ago where, is it Serena Williams? Is that the one that's really, the really good one? Yes. Yes. USADA showed up at her house, and uh, she didn't answer the door. And she like locked the door and barricaded herself in the house because she said that she was just scared because there was a stranger at her house. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Hello, I'm with USADA. Stranger. Stranger <laughs> danger. I, and I want just to touch back on the albuterol clen thing. Also, too, if you look at dosing, one's in micrograms and one's in milligrams. So you definitely can see the difference in strength potency there. <laughs> So these are conversations that you want to have, preferably with someone that doesn't have MS or BS after their name. They should have MD after their name. Those are the type of people that you want to have these conversations with. Unless you just want to throw caution to the wind, in which you, in which case you do, you know, live your own life. We don't want to tell you how to live. All right. Our next question comes from... At Sal Beatbox, S-A-L-L-E Beatbox. You ever have any friends when you were younger that would be like, yo, listen to me beatbox real quick. And you would have to just stand there and be like, yeah, this is super dope. But actually, you were like, this is so painful. This is so bad. No, I didn't have any friends that did that. Did you have any friends? Not really. (laughs) See, there's your issue. Jay is like, holy shit, I was the beatbox guy. I was the beatbox guy all along. <laughs> no, dude, I remember, I mean, being a kid, you know, back in the, the 40s and 50s, uh, when hip-hop was sort of just getting started, you know, beatboxing was really big. So, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of beatboxing. I remember it was, like, big in commercials and stuff. They'd have somebody beatboxing because, you know, rap is cool still. Yeah. Even back then. And that was, like, the big thing was beatboxing. So honestly, now, <laughs> like it Paul's is coming with a completely alternative. He's like, "Yeah, it's just dope." Yeah, it's fucking cool. Sal, we appreciate you, man, for keeping the fine art of beatbox alive. Um, Sal asks, "All natural, cool. What do you find to be the best way to contest prep and water manipulation?" So, okay, all right. Uh, how do we want to do this one? Water manipulation. Water manipulation at the end of a contest prep. Best ways to handle that all naturally. So let's say peak week. What do you guys do with your clients to kind of manipulate water um, near the end of a contest prep? Oh, this is Jay's department on the all natural Jay's side. Jay's the natty pro, dude. Nat- natural coach since O two, dude. So here's where we're going to do it. Three weeks out, I need you to stop drinking water altogether. Sauna three times a day. It's funny because I remember when that was a thing, like where, you know, as a natural, you would try to manipulate water just because that's what you read Ronnie Coleman was doing. And apparently Ronnie Coleman was doing some other things that they didn't put in muscle mag at the time. So 
uh, you know, what Ronnie was doing may or may not have applied to the uh, the natty crowd, believe it or not. But, uh, pork. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I would I remember being a competitor and I remember sort of, you know, trying to manipulate water and just watching these wacky things happen where, you know, I, I would look great. You know, on Sunday, that day of peak week where I started the weird water manipulation stuff. And then by Tuesday or Thursday, Tuesday, between Tuesday and Thursday, I would look and just go, huh, things don't look the way they did a few days ago. It must be the carbohydrates. Let me sort of figure that out. (laughs) And then, you know, Friday would come and I'd just be like, hmm, this is very strange. I should drop more water because that could also be the problem. Um, (laughs) But you know, luckily things have changed. Uh, people have gotten smarter by people. I mean me and, uh, just slightly. And so now, you know, I don't mess around with water really at all. I just want to make sure the person I'm, I'm working with that they're, they're drinking water. That's a good place to start. Um, you know, or drinking some fluid in general, just enough to make sure that their urine's clean. And I try or not clean. I do want to make sure that their urine Jay. is clean. Jay. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually uh, the first thing I'm making sure their urine is clean, uh, very closely followed by that their urine is clear uh, throughout the prep. And then I don't like to mess with water really at all. And I almost will try to stay on top of competitors the week of just because, you know, everybody starts getting nervous. Certain things, certain variables will kind of fall by the wayside. And sometimes people will just get nervous, especially like the day before the day of competition. And they'll kind of just stop drinking water. And then you're like, are you drinking? And they're like, oh, no, no. And they, you know, they they have their sort of uh, their cliche gallon of water with them backstage and it's still full. And I'm like, drink some water, please. Like, can you please do that? Um, <clears throat> and that's backfired for me personally as a competitor. I get super nervous and I'll drink too much water. So then I'm like back and forth the bathroom like every five minutes and then it's just it just adds that anxiety so long story short i don't mess with water at all and the day of i will make sure that the person i'm working with is continuing to drink water so there isn't any change there at all paul before i let you go in jay's defense on the clean pee comment Jay's number one idol in life is Patches O'Houlihan, um and it's sterile and he likes the taste so leave jay alone Paul, now, now let's 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 hear it. No, I mean Jay just made me think about um, how you've had some people that will neglect the water. Have you ever gotten on to them about that? And then they just start killing the water, and then they look does some really weird stuff. I had that happen once, and I was like, "What did you do?" Because it was like two o'clock, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I've been waiting in lines and running like." to grab like stuff the day before the show to his hotel or whatever. I'm like, you haven't drinking any water and it's like two. And then he just starts slamming it. And I'm like, you just look weird now, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I think people, especially, and I mean, we've had conversations about it before, you know, competitors start to do weird things, you know, eight ish weeks out, they just start getting in their head a little bit too much. Um, and yeah, so I've definitely had some people that have like not drank water, on a Friday and I'm like, Hey, how much water have you drank? I'm like, Oh, I haven't drank any. And I'm like, okay, we'll start drinking some water. And then they send me pictures Friday night where I'm Friday night is where I'm looking for a certain look. Um, and then they send me a picture. I'm like, what happened here? Like they're super flat, like far more flat than I want them to be just because they basically, you know, they pissed out all their electrolytes now. And then we're doing this weird sodium e watery situation to try to like get them back to normal. 
and then trying to push carbon. And then, <clears throat> I mean, towards the end of a contest prep, when you're really lean, your digestion is all whacked out to begin with, you know, and then you're trying to add carbohydrates, which can sort of, that can add to that sort of level of being uncomfortable. And then now you don't have any water in your system at all. So people will just get bloated in those situations and just weird things happen. Then they start getting anxiety. So then they're stressed out and then just weird things happen. So long story short, kids, drink water throughout. Yeah, I think that was what taught me. And I think this is something like me and Dom will do now is tell people how much water to have with each meal. Because before I used to just be like, how much water were you drinking? Okay, a gallon and a half, whatever it is, just have that by the end of the day. And then there would be those days, a couple days out, where they would just do crazy stuff like that, like finish all their water the last six hours of the day or something. <laughs> yeah. So like, like probably like three weeks out, I'll try to lock them in at a water intake, and just like, be like, what have you been drinking? They tell me five liters a day. I, I'll just say, okay, five liters a day, all your fluid, count it. That's all we're doing. And then we get into peak week, and then by like Wednesday, I I start doing what Paul was saying, like twenty ounces with this meal, twenty ounces with this meal, twenty out. And then I I barely ever touch water. I I probably never do. And I think with natural guys, even it's even more important to keep water in because at least like with enhanced people, you still have that. Um, you know, you you'll have like a higher aldosterone effect because of them being enhanced. So water retention's a little bit better with them so they might not need as much water but i feel like natural guys i've had the driest natural guys drinking the most water so i think that has something to put credit to in terms of because jay mentioned it when you do kind of so let's say you read something by cliff wilson and you're like you know when cliff peaks people you know he rapid backloads and all you read is the water section where you're like oh cliff has people do three gallons of water a day you didn't read the rest you didn't read all the electrolyte stuff um the carbohydrate stuff when someone does take that and you know they have their three gallons of water for an entire week leading into the show they they they're obviously going to run through those electrolytes so what do you guys like to do in terms of like setting an electrolyte baseline going into a peak week dom you're just coming out of a peak how did you handle yours yeah uh we set up my uh sodium potassium intake like three weeks out pretty consistently so like i knew exactly how much salt to add to each meal i knew um well, most of my potassium was coming from food, uh, but all of those variables were locked in. So we knew that my sodium potassium were at these levels. My water was locked in at this level. That was the look that that water electrolyte balance provided. So then I knew if I added water, I'd probably have to bring up my electrolytes. If I brought water down, I'd probably have to reduce my electrolytes. So I like having those variables like pretty set in stone at least two weeks out uh, so that, you know, you don't run into those big issues of flushing electrolytes too much or having to tweak stuff last minute. And then you can kind of see like, what if we give this guy a little bit more sodium this meal? How is he going to respond? And we'll just keep water there. And then you kind of see what a more sodium look looks like on the person versus what their baseline has been 
and then you can kind of gauge how you want to change things on that. It's one of the funniest things for me when you hear coaches or you hear athletes posting their pictures online and they're like, you know, this was a really flat look. This was a really watery look. This was a really like salty look. And you're like, this person just has no fucking clue what they're talking about. So maybe walk me through what those visually look like to you when you see someone who's like truly flat, when you see someone who's truly like overhydrated. I know like um, for myself, I always, man, I have this one photo of Christina from her first national show where I didn't give her much water and I just pounded her with food and sodium, dude. And it was like this smooth, it was so, it was really full, but it was like this smooth, bubbly, but also kind of like, I don't know, it was just, just so round and smooth. I don't know how to like really relay it, like what it looks like without having like a photo example. I think the way I describe it is it's almost like, you know how you can get like too much of a pump and it almost sort of makes things look blurry. Yeah. That yeah. makes some sense. That's what it kind of looks like to me. When somebody hasn't had enough water and they've had too many carbohydrates, they just look like almost stay puffy in their abs as opposed to looking crisp. It's like you can just see the indention of their abs, but you can't really see what's going on there, but they look lean. It's just a weird sort of look. You can, you'd have to, I don't know. It's, I think if you have the eye, you can definitely see it. It just looks very strange. Um, is that what you guys see typically? Yeah. yeah. Like, I think, I, I think that's like, a phenomenon like, of, like very high intracellular and very high extracellular water. There's just like a lot of water retention overall. So you get that fullness, but that layer of water under the skin is preventing the uh, kind of like that detail from being shown. This is a look that like I see a lot of like huge, huge bodybuilders bring to the stage, like someone like Dallas McCarver, like his legs always had that look where they were just like, as Paul likes to say, dick busting full, but they never really kind of had the separation, the grain, the striations of someone like a Dom Cusa. <laughs> <laughs> you can't compare me to him. <laughs> I just did, and you won the comparison. Uh, no, I think, uh, like, I noticed with me, if I put sodium too high, my like loose skin that I had from, you know, dropping fat, uh, would fill up with water. It was, it was a really weird, but it, water would stay. But if sodium came up too high, my like loose skin on my lower ab would like almost like have a fold into it. And if I flexed my abs down, like you could see at the bottom that there was almost like a little bit of like water pouch there. Yeah, I would say for me, actually, like, I would look at myself and describe it as spongy. Like a spongy yeah. look. But I had some body fat to lose, so. Like a shrink-wrapped sponge. <laughs> How about something like a, like a, just a super, super flat look? Like, what does that visually look? Because I think a lot of people, they call themselves like, oh, I was just a little flat. 
Like, nah, dude, you had like six pounds of body fat to go. But what does like a true flat look like to you guys when you look at a client's picture and you see that? What are you noticing? Definitely like no pop to their muscle. Um, they might even lose some. Actually, I think they look even more striated, but there's way less three-dimensional effect to it. So I notice it a lot in guys' uh, chests. So if they're super flat, we can see a lot of striations, but it almost looks just like a piece of paper. Like there's no pop to their chest, even though there's a lot of striations in it. Um, and I also notice it a lot with guys who have well-developed abs. If they're flat, their abs don't show as much because I think their abs need to fill out to bring them more to the surface so that when they flex, they can see their abs a bit more. Yeah, I'm glad you said it like that because when someone's flat and lean, they still look extremely lean. Like you're still going to see the striated glutes. You're still going to see the quads coming through, but their physique almost looks like a little like a little dead, like it just needs to be like brought back to life with, with some food when they're on the flatter side. Yeah. yeah that was I noticed it all the time it. with my glutes this past prep. Every time I was flat, my glutes lost lines. And every time I had a refeed and I think Fill it's because I have decently developed glute muscles. Yeah, you fucking do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you do. But, uh, when I would carb up, I'd see more striations in my glutes just because I, I filled out my glutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also noticed the striations in your glutes as well. We <laughs> all do. We can't. It's just mesmerizing. All right. Here's a good transition for you from Dom's butt to chewing gum. Question from at Chelsea Schmidt. She said, are there any downsides to chewing sugar-free gum all day? And she wanted to clarify that we are talking about, in all caps, a lot of gum here. So <laughs> up to this question, I asked her, what are the sugar alcohols like that? Because that's obviously the direction we're going to go with this question. Um, what are the sugar alcohols that are in your gum brand of choice? And she sends me a text and says, here, I emptied my backpack. And I'm not even kidding you. It was like 14 packs of gum that were on the floor. She's like, these are them. There are all sorts of sugar alcohols. So this really is a lot of gum here. What What are some downsides that come to your guys' mind right away? Uh, digestion. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, again, we get back to the, the, the sugar alcohols. What, can, what kind of an effect can sugar alcohols have on your digestion? And why is the answer explosive diarrhea? <laughs> well, we can't break them down, technically. So they pretty much pass through us and they could cause a lot of distress in your gut. Um, I've read, too, that they can affect your gut biome. So messing with your uh, intestinal bacteria, which could cause even more issues digestively. So when people overconsume sugar alcohols, most of the time they, they do have like diarrhea. They pass, um, they pass stool really easily and not to be gross, but watery because they're the, because their gut is having a hard time digesting all of that sugar alcohol and I think it pulls water into your intestine as well. 
which causes a soft stool. Yeah, yeah when we look at the gut as a whole, speed is not what we're looking for here. When things pass through the gut with speed and with high force, they tend to negatively affect the gut microbiome. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I don't want to get too gross here, but when you're pushing water and sugar alcohols and all sorts of weird stuff through there at 70 miles per hour and it's leaving your butt at 90 miles an hour, like not going to be super beneficial for your gut health. And then you may see some like downstream effects of like disruption to digestion and things like that. Um, when we're looking at sugar out, cause some people might not really even know how to identify sugar alcohols on a label. When you're identifying these compounds, what are you guys looking for in terms of the ingredient label? <clears throat> that sorbitol is the big one. Sorbitol, yeah, it's all. <laughs> yes. O-L. So anything that ends in O-L is going to be an alcohol. So things like xylitol, erythritol, sorbitol. Uh, what are some other ones? Maltitol, I think, is one of them. Those are the most yeah. common. Yeah. I'm glad you just said all of them because I've never tried and I don't want to. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's your present. There's your I don't know if those pronunciations are all correct, but I said them with confidence. So therefore, they are correct. That's how this thing works. Now, here's one for you guys. The effect of sugar alcohols on blood glucose control. Because you'll hear some people say, you know, these things are absolutely horrible for people with diabetes because they create these big swings in blood sugar. But then you'll hear other people say, you know, it's better than something, the sugary alternative. Where do you guys kind of lie on that? Um, well, research shows that <laughs> uh, the effect on blood sugar is less than standard sugar. So there still is an effect on blood sugar. So how does sugar get into your blood? It has to be digested, right? Yeah. And if the issue here is that these sugar alcohols are going undigested and then you get all of the diuretic symptoms from there, you're never actually going to see that sugar alcohol, whatever it is, appear in the blood. That's, that's, how, that's what these things were designed to do, to be undigestible to create the palatability of sugar without the digestibility. Well, I think they are partially digested because they still yes. have calories. Yeah, so, so they have anywhere from like 30 to I think 60% of the calories. Yeah, so I think that in itself could be enough to cause a little blood sugar spike. It could. Because, because, they, because they are backbones of yes. sugars just attached with this alcohol that makes it harder to digest because that's what I, I always tell clients like two to three pieces max a day <laughs> because once you dude, you know how it is back. Like when you're deep in contest prep, like you could go through a pack of gum in an hour. Yeah. Like and and, the only, and, the only thing that provides joy in your life is cinnamon gum. Yeah. So like that could add a good amount of calories back to your day and fuck up your digestion. <laughs> I think like the biggest for me, the biggest source of concern here isn't really the gum. Like, 
I guess, you know, in Chelsea's situation here, this is causing an issue. So there's probably too much gum being chewed there. And the fix there is to dial that back. But it's the things like, have you guys ever had like sugar-free maple syrup? Yeah. Or like the protein bars that have like 30 grams of sugar alcohol in one protein bar. And on the back, they actually have to write like this could cause a laxative effect. I see those being a far bigger concern than something like gum, just because, I mean, I guess some people are chewing a lot of gum, but really that's, that's, that's quite a bit of gum. In terms of the, um, the calorie content, some of these fitness companies, these fit food companies get a little sneaky with these sugar alcohol calories, don't they? Yeah, and I think with them too, those fit food companies aren't always FDA approved. So their labels aren't, they don't have to confide to those laws. So that's why it'll say sometimes on those bars, it doesn't say nutrition facts, it says supplement facts. <laughs> and we know supplement facts are far from the truth most of the time. Proprietary blend of nutrition facts. Yeah. <laughs> Jay, what were you gonna say? Um, I don't know why. I, I just thought about this. Remember, do you guys remember that uh, the mouth rinsing study where the, they gave yep. the participants uh, Gatorade or a Gatorade type substance, and they didn't drink it; they just mouth rinsed and then spit it out, and then still saw a rise in blood glucose. Yeah, yeah. Did they see a rise in blood glucose, or was it just an increase in performance or something? Like well, it would make sense, though, because we start carbohydrate digestion in the mouth. Yeah. Um, I think I was trying to read it really quick while you guys were talking, but I think it does show just an increase in performance. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, they didn't report blood glucose. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, like Dom said, it would make sense if blood glucose went up with carbohydrate digestion beginning in the mouth, unless it was the placebo, which wouldn't have had carbohydrates in it, then you might expect an increase in performance without the subsequent rise in blood glucose, that old placebo effect. I mean, if they're mouth rinsing, they're probably still like drinking some of it, you know? The same way like you, you would get like a little bit of the sugar out of a piece of the gum or something. Yeah. So, are you saying that spitters aren't truly quitters? Maybe not, dude. <laughs> I knew I was gonna get Dom on that one. Dom's because like, I don't. Why I don't, do I do this? I don't think just purely putting it in your mouth would cause. <laughs> we're we're going hypothetical here because I don't know what it's like to put it in your mouth, but I would think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never been there, but <laughs> let's speculate here for a minute. Uh, <laughs> but uh, guys, because... make sure you sign up for the mentoring lab. You get all sorts <laughs> of good stuff inside of there at ninety nine dollars a month. Um, because that that the presence of uh, higher blood glucose in your blood would be the start of feedback for releasing insulin or whatever. Um, but because 
glucose digestion does start in the mouth, but that's just through amylase. Hmm. There's not like a, or I don't think, I'm not aware of like some connection between glucose being in the mouth and uh, signaling to the hypothalamus that, you know, hey, we have blood sugar to take care of. Yeah, that's, that's basically I think what you would be able to, you would be able to technically create an insulin response just by putting something sweet in your mouth, right? If that was the case. That, yeah, that would need to be true. So I would just think that there would be some residual um, left after they spit that would go in. For sure. For sure, dude. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that just about does it on that question <laughs> guys i hope you really enjoyed that it really tailed off there at the end and we apologize but we're gonna bring it home with this one right here a question from at jsp underscore training hey juan how are you juan asks thoughts on mini cuts guys stop fucking wording questions by just saying thoughts what i got a lot of thoughts you want to know any specific ones but thankfully juan continues what is the best way to utilize a mini cut and who should not pursue them? So of your clients, um, which, what is the best way to utilize, you know, something like a mini cut? Maybe we should define a mini cut. Jay, I'm putting you on the spot. Define a mini cut. What the shit is it? Uh, I guess more or less, it's just a shorter duration of period in which you're in a caloric deficit, probably a pretty aggressive caloric deficit. Uh, I, I guess with the idea of sort of cleaning up any excess body fat that you've put on during your bulking period, bro. Hell yeah. All right. A condensed, more aggressive fat loss phase. I like it. Yeah. What would be the best way to utilize? So how in practice, where do you set the deficit? What is that duration going to be? And maybe what's the best time of year or time within the, you know, yearly plan to fit in something like a mini cut? Is it directly after one of these, you know, dreamer bulk massing phases? Is it to keep your P ratio on point? Why are we using these things? Um, I like to use mini cuts when sometimes if somebody's uh, appetite goes really bad in the middle of a growth season or a growth phase i'll uh, i'll chop like hard maybe 20 25 percent and just keep it there and not touch it again and just let that ride for like i don't know five six weeks and then uh can start bringing their food up to see how their appetite responds back to their growth phase and then just once food gets to a good point we can go into a maintenance phase um i like doing them too before a growth phase if someone is not as lean as they should be so to clean up before we start pushing food really hard and uh pushing growth really hard i like to do them at that time too so that you kind of get like a rebound effect when you start your growth phase but I like just Paul, chopping calories one time and that's I like the I like the twenty five percent deficit. So that can kind of show how aggressive you want to get with it. Yeah, I think everything Dom said was on point. Um I do want to comment on the duration. I think if anything, I think if your diet 
is eight weeks or longer, it's just a diet now. It's not a mini anything. Um, uh, the second thing I sort of want to say is I've had people come to me and ask me about mini cuts and they're sort of pre-planned uh, several months out. And my opinion is it's not something that you should be pre-planning. It's more like, oh, shit, things went too far at some point and now we got to fix it. Like, I think the goal should be to not have to mini cut, but things don't always go to plan, um, in my opinion. And then uh, I think for one thing Dom said, when hunger really starts to suck for some people, I don't think it's a bad strategy. But what I try to do coming out of that strategy from that point I've already sort of determined like, oh, this person, if I shove food in them too fast um, or they get too soft too fast, they're going to really struggle to eat. So this time we're not going to be concerned with um, pumping food too fast and we're going to take a gradual approach. And our goal with this person is to actually just keep them hungry. Like I think a lot of people really worry about not being hungry and being hungry sounds like the worst thing. But for some people, it's just going to be better to keep them a little more hungry. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, I, I like the 20 to 25% cut. I think that's more, um, that would be textbook definition of how people do mini cuts these days. I still like to start a little more conservative and get the ball rolling with a low percent deficit, something like 10 or 15%. But keeping in mind that this plan is to, uh, keep the dieting period short, I just make more frequent chops and get to that 20 to 25 pretty fast. Whereas like in a normal diet, I'm actually trying not to get to a 25% deficit and prolong getting as much fat loss as we can without digging that hard. Does that make sense? Yeah. Something I always wonder there is like at the end of the day with a, with any cutting phase, you want to put off the side of the negative side effects that come with fat loss for as long as you possibly can. Something that I always wonder is, are those negative side effects of dieting coming from the original deficit or are they coming as a feedback mechanism of the weight lost? So Paul's theory makes more sense if the response is the body, no, if the side effects are a response of the body to the deficit, Dom's makes more sense if the side effects are a result of the body adapting to the weight that's being lost. So Dom's strategy is more so a get in, get out as fast as you can. Paul's is more of a strategy of let's kind of start a little slower and ramp it up as we go. So I wonder if there are any pros and cons or if there are like really measurable pros or cons there or if it just depends on the individual. The only, honestly, the only reason I do what I do is just so the weight loss looks cleaner and I know I'm keeping it moving versus I throw them in a 20, 25%. They lose a lot of weight on the front end, then weight sits for a week or two, and then they get a big drop. I just like to keep it moving. That's literally the only reason. And part of that is for the the person's sort of psychological benefit of enjoying the dieting process. And you know how some people get when they diet. They're like, are we dropping food this week? Are we dropping food this week? We're in a mini cut. We have food to drop. I'm going to drop it for you. And like they think you're like the coolest dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. That's a really good yeah. point. 
versus like, hey, I'm chopping this food. And then every week they check in and they're like, are we are we going to cut some more? And you're like, no. <laughs> Paul, Paul's strategy is centered around being Don't a cool dude. Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> At the end of the day, Paul just wants to be a cool dude. All right. Jay has the hard job here of saying who's right and who's wrong. We've got one vote for a more aggressive approach, one vote for a slower approach. Jay's going to come in here and be like, guys, I don't want to pick. <laughs> They're both my favorite. Yeah, I mean, I love both of you guys equally. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, personally, I, I'm a fan of being a little bit more aggressive just because I kind of want to get that done as quickly as possible. Um, just because I... At the end of the day, it's like you said, if there's if you have too many cut, there's probably some things that we need to figure out of why we need to get to this mini cut. Um, you know, a lot of people are using them now as a way to kind of bridge portions within a contest prep. Um, so I, I guess I, I get that. I think Steve Hall's doing he's done some mini cuts because he was like supposed to compete and then he wasn't going to compete, and, you know, due to the nature of last year. So it made a little bit of sense there. But you know, I like to be a little bit more aggressive and then I more importantly want to address like, why are we in this situation to begin with? Um, I also like to keep my people a little bit, not lean, but I don't like to, them to get really far away from, you know, contest shape because that, that fat has to come off at some point in time, no matter what. So let's just address the reason why we're in this mini cut, which it sounds great for me to tell my people that, but I think Ryan will tell you guys, like pretty much every contest prep I've ever done has been just due to a failed mini cut. And then I'm like, okay, we're already in it. Like, let's just keep going. So here we go. <laughs> yeah. But whenever yeah, I, I like hear mini cut, whenever I hear mini cut now, I think about like, must have been like 20, maybe 30 episodes ago on the Revive Stronger podcast. There would always be that like interlude with Steve where he was like, fast, efficient fat loss. Does that sound like it's right? I don't know why he's Australian now. Oh, man, I butchered it. I'm sorry, Steve. I'm so sorry. It's like robbing the fat loss bank. Yeah, in and out. Oh, man, he's still Steve Irwin. He's the wrong Steve. This <laughs> is so embarrassing. I can't do British. It just becomes immediately Australian. Um but yeah, I like his description there of kind of like getting in, getting out. I also think that so to kind of skip ahead to the second part of the question, who shouldn't pursue mini cuts? If you can reflect upon yourself or someone has told you in the past that you are an overly neurotic person in regards to your bodybuilding endeavors, I would say that mini cuts are not something for you because you're going to feel like you need them all the time. So look at your last 12 months of hypertrophy and fat loss training. Do a full 12-month audit. How much of those 12 months was spent in mass gaining and getting bigger? How much of it was spent in fat loss mini cuts? Because if you're going eight weeks of gaining, four weeks of mini cut, eight weeks of gaining, four weeks of mini cut, and you're spending something ludicrous like 30 to 40% of what's supposed to be a gaining year for you, your off season in a mini cut, you're really, what you're really doing is you're curtailing your mass gaining efforts over the course of your career by being overly neurotic about what you look like right now in this moment. I think this is something that's like, I don't want to pick on the natty folks, but the natty folks get absolutely crazy, crazy, crazy with the mini cuts. Yeah, I think you, that was a good point because I always, I, I mean, I've had to have conversations with so many of my guys that, 
you're spending too much time trying to lose fat and that's why you're not changing on stage. You're not giving yourself enough time to actually sit in a surplus, sit in a maintenance after the surplus. You're constantly trying to shave off fat for the sake of being what, two to 3% leaner. Like the trade-offs don't make sense to me. So I, I like the way you worded that as looking at your whole year and how much time you actually spent in the surplus, in the maintenance, in the fat loss. If you're way above percentage-wise in fat loss, that's why I think you're not making progression because you're just not giving your body enough time. And you really run the risk of burning yourself out because in terms of like what is psychologically repeatable for months and years on end, that would be mass gaining over or being in a surplus over being a deficit all day, every day. That's a lot more maintainable. And it's also going to help improve your performance. The, the parallel that I draw is like the direction that U.S., the United States youth sports is going right now, where these kids are playing their sport their entire year all the way through and they're not getting any chance to like drop into an off season where they can do weight training or play another sport or just do general athletic endeavors and what are we seeing is that like the attrition rate in youth sports is going through the roof like these kids are getting burned out mentally they're getting injured and they're not getting any better at their actual sport so that's something that's kind of permeated into bodybuilding culture as well yeah like for me, after this show, my goal now is to survive Murph. Yeah, that. And uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, spend the next 15 months either in a surplus or maintenance. I don't want to get to the point where I have to spend some of those months in a deficit because I want to make as much progress as I can. Because next year, I've been to toying with the thought of doing something again at the end of next year. So if I can just take a little bit of the end of next year as my fat loss phase and these next 15 months in a surplus or a maintenance only, I could theoretically make a good amount of progress in that time. And I don't want to derail us too much into like the enhanced side of bodybuilding, but I feel like there's a subset of that world where maybe dosages are being pushed too high and compounds are being used year round that probably shouldn't be because there is that drive or that impulse to always stay stage lean, to always look good and to always be competing. So to progress, if you're not giving yourself the time to progress, there is one other thing that you can kind of inject into the scenario to artificially push yourself forward, and that's more compounds or higher dosages. Short term, you reach your goal. Long term, you may kind of feel the ramifications of that. Paul, would you say that's that's accurate from that side of the world? Yeah, I think there's definitely a subset of people who uh, kind of go that route, um, whether they mean to or not. Yeah, trying to expedite the timeline by making manipulations to other variables in the equation, maybe at the expense of their own health. Yeah, I mean, the culture has just changed a lot, you know, with um, I, I think social media is part of it. But where a lot of people come up thinking that that's what everybody does, like all the people that are good, they stay lean all year. They do two or three shows a year um, and they don't see, you know 
maybe the older individuals or the points of an athlete's life or competitor's life where they would spend two or three years at a time not not dieting um or uh you know they they just see somebody that just got their pro card and now they're trying to go to the o in the same year and they do like three back-to-back shows like that's not how that person built all that mass and all that size and um not what they were doing the majority of their career yeah that's a good point and even if you do see someone who's competing all the time like so i use myself as an example i competed 14 15 or 2014 2015 16 and 17 from 14 to 15 i got better 15 to 16 i got better 16 to 17 i took a massively large step back not only in the size on stage, but also in conditioning. So I kind of rode this wave of like getting better completely in spite of myself. And then eventually you grind to that halt of like, okay, now you really got to take some time off if you actually want to wanted to improve. So a better plan for me maybe had been like take 17 and 18 off to compete again in 19. Um, so yeah, a lesson learned. And we see these examples too. I can think of two people. I won't say the names, but you it's know, Donovan one of Jay, <laughs> one of <laughs> a powerlifter that for many years I think tried to compete in 198 and stayed shredded, and then they make their transition to bodybuilding and they're not worried about that weight class anymore, and they just blow the fuck up, you know. Um, and that's what can happen. Like if you try to stay too lean, you you really limit yourself. And, you know, I can think of another competitor that competed very frequently since they got their pro card. And now for the first time, they're taking a couple of years off and they are finally blowing up. Yeah, I think that's a good, really good point. Time. Consistency over time. Right, Dom? Always. We got a link below. Throw it in the bio. Throw it in the description of the video, Lenny, to Dom's post about being consistent over time, because that was truly a beautiful post sir guys that wraps us up on our questions today is there anything that you would like to leave the people with some sage advice some wisdom from these old heads eat your vitamins take your vitamin d <laughs> take your vitamin d put Paul. it in your mouth put it the in your mouth <laughs> put the vitamin d put the vitamin d in <laughs> jay, jay jay calls us off Jay, come on. You gotta you gotta finish us here. The D is in the mouth. You gotta finish us off. Good night, everybody. And of course, as always, we'll see you on the next one. Like, comment, subscribe, do all that stuff. Stay gifted. Peace. Bye.